0: And please turn in your copies of the scriptures to the 25th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25, which if you're using the, the Bibles that are on the seats there, is on page 503. Isaiah 25. Listen to what the Lord says. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin Palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. The 11th chapter of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews famously opens with a very important, spirit-directed, apostolic definition. For our spiritual encouragement in murky, uncertain times like our own, we do well to give this verse our very careful attention. The writer to the Hebrews writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the full conviction, even we might say the certainty of things not seen. So, people possessed of this quality of faith are people accustomed to waiting. We are waiting for certain things to happen. Things we haven't seen yet. Now they're good things. They're things that God solemnly promised to those who love him. We're used to waiting. Beloved, think for a moment of Abraham. Widely considered to be the father of the faithful. In his lifetime, our father Abraham received the covenant promises of God. He believed them, and in believing them was justified before God. And then began waiting for those things to be fulfilled. I'd like you to bear in mind that when Abraham began waiting, he was a man 75 years old. This very old man was promised a son by his wife Sarah, who at that time would have been 65 years old. But Abraham was 75, and he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And the years passed. In fact, decades passed. Sometimes we know Abraham waited patiently, other times not so patiently. The truth is, by the time Abraham was 100 years old, he was looking in the full-length mirror that was in his tent and saying to himself, Sarah may be a very fine-looking woman for a girl of 90, but this man I'm looking at is as good as dead as good as dead. At certain points along the way, for instance, when as a young buck, not out of his mid-80s, he tries to take the fulfillment of those promises of a son into his own hands, whereupon all kinds of mischief ensued for his household, because the biblical faith consists of waiting for the things promised, and firmly believed, but not yet seen. Of course, in Abraham's case, and that of myriads upon myriads of his children over the last 4,000 years, they all died in faith. They died waiting for the fullness of something They never actually saw, which when you think of it might be a pretty poor recommendation for faith until you read down a few lines in that 11th chapter of Hebrews to verse 6 and you come to realize that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So for a very long season, one that encompasses hundreds of successive generations of human history, this living and true God wishes us to wait for him. The life we live as Christians is the life of faith, not of sight. We are here today and soon to be gathered around this table because we're waiting for something we haven't yet received in its fullness. Now, certainly we've received a very important pledge of it, a token much as a bride-to-be customarily receives from her beloved, an engagement ring. The engagement ring isn't the wedding ring. The betrothal isn't that blessed day of the wedding or the life that lies beyond it. But according to promise, our bridegroom in these last days has given us his own Holy Spirit as a pledge. His Spirit is a pledge of all the good things that lie ahead for us. Now, how does all this that I've been saying, how does this relate to the passage before us today in the 25th chapter of Isaiah. Well, as I said, our wait for the unfolding of God's covenant promise is a multi-generational wait. The children of Abraham started waiting a very long time ago. And certain generations along the way, along the course of human history, certain generations were enriched with divine revelation that gave some additional color and shape to the original covenant promise made in the Garden of Eden. So, the children of Adam and Eve, they had a certain baseline expectation of the coming Redeemer to avenge this terrible evil that took place back in the Garden. Very basic baseline expectation. Ten generations later, the children of Noah had a bit more information. Ten more generations, and the children of Abraham had still more. And those blessed to receive the law of Moses 500 years later had much more covenant revelation upon which to build their future hopes and then by the time another 500 years had elapsed, that is, by the time of David, the outlines of that coming Redeemer, first promised in the garden, the outlines of that coming Redeemer were becoming pretty distinct. And yet David wasn't that Redeemer. Neither was Solomon. Still that promised one, hadn't actually appeared in the flesh. He waited, and by his waiting, made us wait. Upon the seed of David was built a monarchy that lasted some 400 years. But it was a Davidic dynasty that even at its best limped along. The Davidic monarchy, you remember, was very spotty, very irregular in the quality of it. There were good kings, there were bad kings. And so gradually, as the centuries passed, the Davidic dynasty eventually fell apart. Fell to pieces as it went, all the way down to the exile. Now, At one very dangerous juncture of this Davidic monarchy, just at the point where 80% of the 12 tribes of Israel were descending into the oblivion of Assyrian captivity, and the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were hanging on by a thread, at this juncture, God calls Isaiah to be his spokesman. During the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now under such kings, wicked Ahaz in particular, these accrued covenant promises of God must have seemed ready to flicker out entirely, to just be snuffed out, all those glorious things promised to David. Because while Judah's rotting from all the evils that festered within, she's also assailed from without by all these surrounding nations. Philistia, her chronic enemy. But there was also Ammon and Moab and Edom, Syria, and by this point of time, the imperial superpower of Assyria up in the north, sweeping down southward, gobbling up every nation in her path. It is at such a time as this that Isaiah, who is borne along by the Spirit of God, writes. "O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will give thanks to thy name. For thou hast worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Beloved, the prophet's eyes certainly didn't tell him this. His ears didn't tell him this. The headlines of the day didn't suggest these things to be true. And yet it is true. It was then, it is now, God's expressed covenant purposes conceived in the womb of his eternal decree gradually but inexorably unfold through the passage of time. They unfold through the thick and the thin of human history, through times of feast, through times of famine, through times of wealth and times of woe. Through the rise of these United States and other world empires, and their eventual fall. His kingdom is forever. And so the godly man, the man of faith, gladly, spontaneously praises God and thanks him for what he sees unfolding before him, whatever it may be. Praises and thanks God for the power displayed in his mighty acts of providential judgment. Praises and thanks God for the wisdom of his eternal decree unfolding, for instance, in the fall of the reprobate and his cities described here. For the effectual call even of Gentiles, saved from the smoking rubble of those cities, And for the final consummation of his redemptive purpose for all peoples. To the man of faith, though they're not yet seen, these things are eventualities that are beyond question. He will certainly bring these things to pass, for the Lord has spoken. Today, those of us with a credible testimony of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ will be gathering together at the table of the Lord to enjoy a sacramental meal. And as you know, the meal that we will enjoy is hardly a banquet. But it's intended to put us in mind of one. Its historical reference, in fact, is twofold, the historical reference of what we'll be doing here very soon. First of all, it points us back in time, of course, to a miraculous deliverance from the insufferable tyranny of Egypt and the covering of the homes of the faithful in the blood of a Passover lamb. That Passover celebration was, in fact, the long-awaited occasion on which our Lord Jesus Christ instituted His Supper, His Memorial Supper, with a group of disciples not far off the number who are here today. This Supper differs in many respects, actually, from the Passover Supper. And in fact, it replaces it. In God's economy, it replaces it. Christ, our Passover, in his saving work at the cross, fulfills and supersedes everything that that supper once signified. Brings it to an end. Because Christ at the cross accomplished so much more than the deliverance of a few million Hebrews from the tyranny of Egypt. What Christ actually accomplished at the cross, that to which this supper points us, is prefigured in our passage today. First of all, his death on the cross accomplished that removal of the covering or the veil that once lay over the nations. Christ's death did that. Verse 7, And on this mountain he will swallow up, that is, so as to remove, the covering which is over all people's, Even the veil, which is stretched or woven over all nations. Now you may ask, what was this veil our Lord Jesus Christ removed when he died on the cross? When he died on the cross that was planted on that mountain just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Well, I think it's more than just a a metaphorical veil of human ignorance. This is the veil that for 1,500 years had symbolized the enforced social distancing of men from God. It's the veil that hung there, first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, that thickly woven curtain that announced that you, the sinner, might come just so close to the Holy God, but no closer, no closer. At the moment of his death, that veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, wasn't it? from the very moment of his atoning death for sinners, men may now approach God. Not through the intercession of a Levitical priest applying to the horns of an altar the blood of an animal. No, at the instant of Christ's death, that method of access to God had reached its shelf life it became obsolete. The Levitical service, all that went on there in the temple, it became obsolete. And within a generation, in fact, all of it went up in the smoke of a Roman fire, didn't it? We now come to God only through the intercession of a priest of an entirely different and more ancient order a priest of the order of Melchizedek, a glorious priest who effectively pleads our case before the Holy God, not on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats, but on the basis of his own blood. He pleads for us. He intercedes for us. He mediates for us. We have in him an advocate. Not with any Levitical priest. Well, Christ's death on that mountain swallowed up the veil that covered all peoples that separated us from the living and true God of Israel. But it swallowed up one thing more. And if that first one is of less interest to you, this one is going to excite you. Because on that mountain... The Lord Jesus Christ swallowed up death for all time. And his own resurrection from the dead seals the matter for those who doubt. He swallowed up death for all time. And sadly, we still have to make allowances for those who doubt. Even the disciples doubted for a short while. Thomas was the last of them to be convinced. He missed the assembly of the brethren that first Lord's Day evening, which meant that for a full week after the cross, Thomas's faith failed him. The actual sight of Jesus risen from the dead a week later had to revitalize his fallen faith. And Paul was another apostle privileged with the sight of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. In the 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul waxes eloquent on what Christ accomplished there at the cross. In fact, as he considers the glory of it all, Paul quotes this very passage in Isaiah 25. He says, For this perishable speaking of human nature as it is now, this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It hasn't happened yet, at least not in its fullness. Our loved ones still die. If the Lord tarries, so will I, so will you. We will die. But God has spoken on the matter, and so beyond all question, it is going to come to pass in its time, the death of death. And it's swallowing up for all time in view of Christ's victory. So this meal before us today, the Lord's Supper, points us to the great things that Christ accomplished for us at the cross. Backward in history. But secondly, and no less emphatically, it points us forward to the consummation of history at the last great day. Isn't that what Paul means when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I are among those ransomed Gentiles of whom Isaiah speaks in verses 3 to 5. We're among them our intellectual fortresses, the vain speculations in which we once trusted, they've all been cast down under the proven weight and power of the gospel. Our fortified cities, intellectual cities, are fallen to ruins. He's won us over. He has subdued us to wait for the day of his return in glory. The day he sovereignly lays aside these simple elements of bread and a cup because we wait for him no longer. That day we're waiting for when he leads us in his triumph, when we see face to face the glorious captain and king that these humble elements sacramentally represent to us today. On that day, that coming day of his return, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. it will be a banquet such as the world has never seen. The Persians couldn't outdo this. And it will be said on that coming day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you and we want to thank you now for the ongoing unfolding of your providential purposes contained in seed form in your eternal counsels. And while we recognize and celebrate the fact that the secret things belong to the Lord, we also recognize and gladly receive that the things that you have revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may keep all the words of this law. Help us to depend upon you. Help us to wait patiently for the return of our King. Help us to... Faithfully take unto ourselves these humble means of grace as reminders and testimonials of your truth and your faithfulness. Grant your blessing upon your people as we seek your face. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.